All right, good morning. So we'll start with uh, the reading of the gospel that was assigned for this uh, first Sunday of Easter, which is from the 20th chapter of uh, St. John. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, Jesus showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, Jesus' disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Amen. Just a beautiful uh, and dramatic uh, moment in the gospel story. And perhaps it raises, uh, maybe something jumps out at you that you'd like to discuss a bit. Uh, or something related to the Easter gospel, uh, which this continues. Um, we, we, uh, we are not here as the uh, experts with the correct answers, but we are here as discussion guides. Uh, to help us enter into some of these questions. Maybe just to get us started, I'll share one with you. My uh, nephew, uh, Gabe. Gabe is, what What grade is Gabe in? Ninth grader? Tenth grader. Oh, there we go. He just got, he just, he just graduated from ninth grade into tenth grade. So Gabe is, uh, uh, w- one of our nephews, complete goofball, uh, in the family. Uh, a caring kid. Uh, he called me on Sunday afternoon last week after, after Easter. They'd been, they live uh, in Chaska and they'd been to church Easter Sunday and, uh, uh, occurred to Gabe while he was listening to the pastor, uh, talk about how Jesus had, uh, had been crucified and placed in the tomb and a large stone was rolled against the entrance of the tomb. And then Gabe was listening, listening to the pastor talk about the, the women going to the tomb early in the morning and bringing spices and 
and, and things to put on the body of Jesus, the way Gabe put it. So Gabe's question for me was, yes, uh, last Sunday afternoon, oh, what made the women think that they could anoint Jesus' body? They knew that the tomb was blocked. So why did they bother? What were they thinking they were going to do? That's not a bad question, right? <laughs> uh, I just went, so that's the kind of question you can sit with for a bit. And, and I started thinking and I thought, well, that's just a really good question. What were those faithful women doing? And I don't know what comes to your mind, but to me, I start to think of, but, you know, they were, they just loved Jesus so much. He meant so much to them and their faith tradition gave them such a pathway of response in this kind of situation, which was to anoint the body for burial. So even though some part of them had to know that there was no way they'd have access to the body of their Lord, they were going to do what they had been brought up their whole lives knowing needed to be done. They were going to not go through the motions, but just out of love and faith and family. They were going to just do what you always do. Prepared to be completely disappointed once arriving at the tomb and seeing what they had to have known was the case. This giant stone sealed the tomb shut. So that's one way that I thought about But then I thought, I sat with the question longer and then I thought, but, that, that, but then maybe these women, maybe there was just part of them. Maybe there was just part of them that believed what Jesus had been telling them all, that on the third day he will rise again. Maybe there was part of them that went there thinking maybe something else might happen. So you see how you can just take one, one question and, and kind of walk through the door of the gospel and have a look around and let your imagination and your faith uh, open up other possibilities to you. Um, so maybe you have a question. I know there are some out there, or it could be something that, uh, that you experienced uh, during the Easter services or at any other time during the year that you would like to, to share, uh, but we'll open it up and and see where where we get to. We have a do we have a timer, Nick. Do we should throw up a timer because time gets away from us every time we do this. All right, there we go. Get us started. Yeah, I was wondering um, when the apostles ran into Jesus, were, were they on the way to Damascus or, or wherever they were going? They didn't. They talked to him, this person and didn't recognize him. Now I'm wondering if he was in spirit at the time or was he bodily there? Um, I just want to know why they didn't recognize him right away. <laughs> this is a great question. Uh, I, I so I the text would give us the would back up that he was bodily there. I mean, it says it right in the in the scripture, so the text would would back that answer up. Um, how they don't recognize him. I think when you have an expectation, you expect to see something, you expect to hear something, that you just see what you expect. So they didn't think it was Jesus because they had just seen him killed. So it was beyond sort of the realm of them understanding. Um, it's kind of how I've 
understood that text to be, and it was only when they share a meal with him that their it says their eyes and hearts are opened, and they were like, "Oh yeah, weren't weren't our weren't our hearts burning within us when he was talking?" Like they kind of knew, but I sort of feel like there was a disconnect there between their head and their heart, right? So they were like, "Wasn't our heart just burning?" We didn't didn't when he was talking to us, we we must have known somewhere, and so I feel like. Um, I don't know, I sort of, I love that story because it's, it's a reminder of what moments in your life was your heart burning within you and you kind of knew what you were experiencing was a holy moment and yet the expectation of what you thought was supposed to happen at that moment prevented you from fully seeing where God was being active. I find that to be a compelling story just in that sense. He's, he wants the mic back. I got a, a follow-up question. Yeah. Um, now, this is on the same line. Um, when they were all hiding because, you know, they're afraid that they were going to get crucified like Jesus, they're all hiding in this room, right? And Jesus appeared, and the doors were locked. It seems like he was in spirit and walked through the door to get in. Did you ever think about that one? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is weird that Jesus just, like, appears but they touch him so he's not a spirit he's a person so i mean it is the unexplainable that we are asked to accept which a lot of people sort of say like no i'd rather i'd rather accept only the explainable and i get that i get that impulse um but to 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 not just to say like he was there i don't know how he got in the room that's part of the like how did he get in here um but that they touched him means he was physically there. Do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, it's good stuff. I, that, I, to the first part of the question, I, I was just thinking, have you ever had that experience where you run into somebody that you only see in one specific place, <laughs> but then you see him somewhere else out of context, and you're like, is that is that is that who I think, you know? <laughs> um, my, uh, my sister Joy was in down visiting my, our mom and dad in Florida in Fort Myers uh last week uh, or the week before and she was out on the beach her and her husband Todd and uh Lori's brother also has a, a place there now my sister Joy hasn't been around Lori's brother too much you know that those two sides of the families are, are a bit removed from each other but she met Bill and and uh but she wasn't thinking maybe there on the beach in Fort Myers she might see Bill jogging by, you know, but she did and she she couldn't remember his first name, but she remembered Lori's maiden name, Cubbish. So she just yelled, Cubbish and and he he didn't expect to hear that and never does. And they, even if someone does know the last name, they pronounce it wrong because it's spelled K A B E S. So but it was out of context and not where you expect. You know, pastors get this oh quite gosh, a bit. Oh my gosh, all know? the time. People think we live here. I don't yeah. know if you guys know we don't like, stay here. We run into kids in like a grocery store or yeah. at a park or something in shorts and they're, <laughs> they're like, they can't even take it. So I don't know, maybe that's part of the, of the deal there with Jesus. I mean, one of our members who will remain nameless was here on Saturday before. I had a jeans and a sweatshirt and a hat on and she was like, Natalia? Like, trying to figure out if that was really me. So it happens all the time, you know. Sometimes I wear a ponytail and a hat, you know. It happens. <laughs> Just don't look like, like we do. 
If Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father, who is seated at the left hand of the Father? Hmm. Well, seat, that's a great question. Uh, maybe that seat is open, maybe, for, uh, uh, for us to, uh, occupy one day. I mean, the right hand is a, is a metaphorical way of saying, you know, most important. So, uh, to say seated at the right hand, uh, is, is to say right there in the most prominent, important, uh, uh, place, uh, probably less so than an actual kind of physical location. It's used and it comes up in other places in scripture, but even in other, uh, Hamilton. other writings. It's there. Mm-hmm. Thank you. A few of you got that. Okay. What's that? It said Hamilton. It's in Hamilton. Hamilton. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah, good. Thank you, Brent, by the way, for being our runner. I'm a little slower today than up the last few nights. Oh, yeah. Well, there you go. This this isn't really about Easter, but I was wondering what your thoughts are on the proposed changing of the wording of the Lord's Prayer. Can you put the mic closer to your mouth, Jan? Thank you. Should I start all over? Yes. Okay, I was wondering what your thoughts are on the proposed changing of the wording of the Lord's Prayer, because it, I think now it kind of says, and lead us not into temptation, but the proposed changes, one of them is, do not let us fall into temptation. So the Lord's Prayer, as is true with all of Scripture, is always, uh, um, being considered by scholars uh, and others uh, who know the original languages to be sure that we are communicating that the that the the words are communicating what is intended for them to communicate so that even going way back into our early versions of our church hymnals um, you will notice uh, if you look into the hymnal that there there are two versions of the lord's prayer uh, uh, included there. Two, two different versions. The, you know, uh, one says sin, the other says trespasses. Uh, and so why, why would you change something like the Lord's Prayer? Well, it's not a matter of changing the prayer. It's a matter of, uh, the attempt is, the intent is to translate in such a way that contemporary, uh, hearers will understand the intended text. So that's true with every Bible translation that comes out. It's true when the Lord's Prayer uh, is is translated, which comes to us from the Scripture. So it's really, really one of the, and the same in that regard. Um, and there are uh, there are a host of variety of of, of translations. Um, there's there's no one giant commi- committee out there that set, uh, that is able to speak to the church at large. Uh, uh, and say uh, we're we're proposing a change to the Lord's prayer, and and we're going to send it on out. To, there's no such pipeline of of hierarchy. That there are there are uh, all kinds of uh, uh, as I said uh, scholarly works that uh, are continually attempting to translate Scripture into the vernacular of the of contemporary uh, culture, whether it be. Uh, in the English language or in all the languages around the world. Um, and that's, uh, that's 
that's what they're so the so in that particular you you noted uh, to, uh, to, uh Deliver us not into temptation, or rather the change. The change is trying to indicate uh, 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 yeah. a theological uh, truth that you know God does. Uh, when we when we hear that language, and it was never intended in the prayer, we it sounds to us like deliver us into temptation. Why would God deliver me into temptation? But so that's not the intended uh, thing that the prayer is protecting us from. It's it's protecting us. Uh, from ourselves, right? So it's a translational uh, uh, intent. Yes, you can understand the difference between lead us not into temptation, which sounds like God is just like dragging you into temptation, right? Uh, versus don't let us fall into temptation, which gives God a, a protective. So theologically, maybe it fits what we believe about God better than God like, hey, I think I think it's time for Joe to be tempted. Let's make that happen. And like, that doesn't fit what we believe about God. And so instead, that we are praying that God prevents us from from being tempted is is maybe a better understanding of how God works in the world. It doesn't it doesn't change the prayer. I mean, I think like the when Jesus gives us the Lord's prayer, it's a, in response to how should we pray? And he's like, "Well, when you pray, pray like this." And so to go and look at that prayer and see what it's trying to get across is really is an important lesson it's an important skill i mean go and do it go look it up in whatever it's in all the gospels go find which one you prefer and read about it and one of my favorite exercises we ever did with kids here was ask them to rewrite the lord's prayer in their common language and a group of kids said yo daddy your name be trippin and i thought it was hilarious but they were just trying to get across like your name is holy right like that's what that's what it is some people grew up with hallowed be thy name and so that brings them some level of comfort to say it in that language but to an eight-year-old hallowed be thy name sounds like a foreign language right so if it's not if it's not connecting then what we're trying to do is say how can we make this connect and to say god your name is holy doesn't change the intention of that prayer also culturally when when scripture is translated there are certain concepts in certain indigenous cultures that have no uh, connection. They can't make sense of it because it's not something that they know of. And so, you know, uh, there are, uh, I travel to Tanzania a lot, there are Maasai warrior translations of the Bible that utilize metaphors that you wouldn't know what that even is. But that, that was necessary to help them understand the intention or the what the text is communicating uh it does them no good to to try and just be a literalist and use the exact phrasing or words it would it would literally be meaningless to them so there are ways to translate scripture into the vernacular of the folks so that they can access the meaning of what is there for them yeah we don't worship the bible we worship god And the Bible is an, is a way we understand God, right? So that's an important thing to remember. The, the Bible is holy, yes, but it is not what we worship. And so we use it to help us understand God. I mean, if you say, don't trespass against us, my kid is going to be like, does that mean stay off my lawn? Like, I don't understand what that means. When, but we can understand that might mean sin, right? Because we've maybe understood or been taught what that means. But not everybody sort of has an understanding of what does it mean to 
trespass against me or to meet for to trespass against someone else. It's a weird kind of language thing that that some of the newer translations or newer um, iterations of the Lord's Prayer have changed to sin against us, um, which is to try to be a little more clear, if that makes sense. Thank you, Jan. That's a great question. All right. So I want to go back into like the gospel scripture for today. And it sounds like when Jesus kind of appeared amongst the disciples, he performed many sort of signs and symbols to kind of help them understand exactly who he was. And I want to kind of take that into today's context and ask, like, in today's world, when we try to explain a lot of things with logic and science and all of that, what do you suppose some of the signs and symbols he would perform today to help those of us who might under or have difficulty believing. Um, so what would those signs look like? Yeah, that's a great question. And <laughs> I, so I imagine there's at least as many answers to that question as there are people in this room right now. I mean, we, we all, I, I believe if you are seeking after a, um, a knowledge of the presence of God, if that's what you're after, then God is going to provide what it is you need to to get there. That's what I believe. Uh, and for some, that has been a, a, a sort of supernatural vision or experience. Uh, for others, it has been, you know, the the sort of pipeline of Sunday school through confirmation, through you know, serving on church committees and being a a, a church member their whole lives. This has steeped them and, and nurtured and given them faith. Uh, and others aren't there yet. And they're, and they're, and they think that that's what I need. You know, it's always been that way. There, there's, you know, people are asking for it in the Bible. It's, you know, I mean, Thomas it, wants to touch him, right? Thomas and wants to jam his hand <laughs> so in the gross. wounds of Jesus, you know, uh, and uh, Pilate wants a sign, and others, uh, you know, followers and adversaries want want signs, and so it's uh, the it seems to be part of the sort of natural human uh, desire to want such a thing. So I look back over my own journey of faith. Have I been given sort of signs and moments of inspiration where I have felt the sort of just palpable presence of God in ways that stick with me and and sort of formed my faith going forward, ways that I don't have constant access to, I can't dial it back up, make it happen again, I would say, yes, I have. I've had those moments. And I I believe everybody gets those moments. I can't, def- I, I can tell you, we can talk about what, what, how that's happened for me over time, but, but everybody here could tell you some story of some moment when they needed God and they knew God was there. So, uh, I don't think it's an old-timey Bible thing that used to happen but doesn't happen anymore. I think it's right here in this room. We could we could spend the hour passing the mic around and, and, and share stories of how you've experienced the presence of God in a real way. In a, yeah. And the other important distinction to make is on the opposite side of that. Uh, everybody has the opposite moment where you're like, you wake up and you're like, you know what, today I don't buy it. I don't buy it today. Uh, there's a, a pretty well-known pastor guy who pastored a huge church, and he said he woke up one Easter and was like, I don't believe today. How do I preach my Easter sermon? He's like, I don't believe today. And I'm like, I love that. That's 
Like we have to be more honest about that's why this this story comes up every year. Unlike most stories in Scripture, kind of are on a three-year cycle that we do in the lectionary. But Thomas comes up every year, and I feel like that's because it's right after we've all had this big moment of Easter glory and trumpets and the whole deal, and then we're like, you know, I might not believe today. Like, I don't know. And I think we have to be more honest about the days we don't quite believe because. Um, because that's real. It's as real as the, as the days we believe so strongly. It's as real as the moments where we feel like God is so present that you could reach out and touch Him on that day. You feel like this is, this is my, you know, this is my Thomas moment. I have this moment. I feel like, yeah, I, I had this moment. I can yell out, my Lord and my God. I can do it. And then there's other days where I like, you know what? No. No. I don't, I don't have it today. And I think that's okay. And I think, that's not shocking. It shouldn't be shocking. Uh, maybe it is to hear that, but I also feel like, you know, that's, that's real. It's, it's, yeah, it's a real thing. St. Paul said, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. <laughs> yeah. And he was Paul. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's a, both of those things can be true. So I feel like don't, if you're waiting for a, uh, like a, a moment, I remember having a conversation with, with a student, uh, a long time ago who said, I just, everybody has these great, has had these great powerful moments and I haven't had mine yet. And I was like, okay, but what is that? Like, does that mean God isn't real then? If you haven't had your like powerful moment, I think God is real in little moments as well as big moments. And if we're waiting for a lightning bolt, we might have missed all these little moments where God was still present because we're looking for like this huge thing, right? And instead, God is in quiet, small, still moments too. Uh, and I think those we miss out on if we're just waiting for the huge, you know, appearing in a locked room kind of moment, which doesn't always, doesn't always happen for everyone. Yes, uh, in a resurrection story of Jesus Christ, uh, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, wrote by saying that he is risen, go and tell his disciples. But in Mark, he made a special emphasis by saying, go and tell his disciples and Peter. Knowing fully well that Peter was one of the disciples, what does that imply? Yeah. Thank you, Frank. So, in the Gospels, Jesus, uh, the, the resurrection is announced, and in, in Mark, there's a special emphasis whereby uh, the announcement is, go and tell his disciples that he has been raised, but go and tell his disciples and Peter. Why? Why do they say, and Peter, Peter is one of the disciples, mm-hmm. correct? Is that the question, Frank? Yeah, so that's great. That's a detail. That's a guy who's reading carefully. And hey, what What about this? So that's fun. Uh, we should do that, read in such a way. Um, you know, for me, uh, it, it, for me, uh, the way I've always, I just love that detail. Because to me, you know, Peter was, he, Peter had said to Jesus, look, I get that others may well deny you, but not me. I'll die with, with you, Lord, when it comes to that. If it comes to that. To which Jesus said, 
Look, Peter, you're going to deny that you even know me before the rooster crows, right? Three times. And, uh, and, and, and that's what happens. You know, hey, you're with him. You're one of him. You know, out there in the courtyard by the campfire. Nah, nah I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. Three times and then the rooster crows. And in Luke's gospel, we just read, uh, Jesus makes eye contact after the third denial of Peter <laughs> with Peter. They look at each other. And Peter, uh, runs away and, and weeps. So for me, Frank, when it says, go tell the disciples and Peter, it's not saying, eh, Peter's no longer a disciple. It's saying, you make sure you get this to Peter. <laughs> Make sure Peter gets this, that he has been raised for all of them and Peter, that, and Peter will be redeemed, huh? And Peter will be reconciled with Christ. And on this rock I will build my church, Jesus said. And that didn't depend on Peter's faithfulness. He was an abject failure when the Lord needed him most. On this rock, I will build my church. When Jesus says something, something happens, right? So that little detail to me is a foreshadowing of the redemption about to land on Peter like a ton of bricks so that he'll run to the tomb to see for himself. And you and I are here this morning because that that group of believers never stopped believing. And though they failed time and time again and doubted and locked themselves away in fear, Jesus told them this is what was going to happen. And so Jesus finds them in that lock house and says, as the Father has sent me, so now I send you, including you, Peter, all of them, including you, Thomas, including each one of us in all of our doubt and and you know, shortcoming and sinfulness. This is the miracle of reconciliation. So it's a great little detail. I'm glad you caught it. Uh, and I love it. Yeah. And I think for a moment, think about just, just take one second and put yourself in Peter's shoes in that moment of eye contact. Just, just think about how, how he felt. I mean, just like it's right. Like it's bad. I mean, you, you would run, you would run, and you would hide, and you would, I sort of like the distinction in Mark's gospel to be like, yeah, to make sure to tell Peter, because he's probably hiding the furthest away, right? In that locked room, I imagine he's in the other locked room, or in, in modern day, they're in the living room, and he's hiding in the bathroom by himself, you know, like, he feels the worst, and he needs it the most, and that is so applicable to how good news works today. Like, who feels the worst needs it the most. So then that's an easy call for us, because that is who God builds the church on. Not the people who have it all together, not the people who have been here the longest, the ones who feel the worst. That's who God, tell that person. That's who God builds the church on. So I think that's that's a way more compelling story of good news than than just like, I mean, I like, I like Peter too. We like, we both like Peter a lot. We like Peter a lot around here. Do you want to add more time? We got a little. Yeah, I think we can get one. We can, we can go over here. Got one question that I'm confused on. 
when Mary realized that she was standing next to Jesus, um, he told her, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. I'm confused on... Are you in what? John? Are you in John's Gospel? Then? Yes. Yep. Yeah. I mean, uh, later that evening, he, he appeared to the disciples, but yet in that morning, he had told Mary that I have not yet returned to the Father. I'm confused on what happens in that that time period between the the morning and the evening what how is that he just wanders <laughs> yeah the ascension is when when scripturally jesus rises goes to be with the father right so this is the the moment at which i mean it's ascension day is in may usually uh it's a day we celebrate loosely in the Lutheran Church, but the Catholics, it's a, it's a holy day of obligation. So if you have any Catholic roots, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's one of the days you were forced to go to church. And, uh, and so that's, but that's what we believe. That's the day Jesus, he didn't live until he died again. Uh, he didn't get killed again. He rose and, and went up to be with God, as the scripture says. So he's saying to Mary, I haven't, he hasn't done that yet. So it's not complete. His work is not yet completed. It is, it's another one of those fun details to look at. And, you know, to me, right away, what I see is she's got him so wrapped up in a bear hug that he's like, Mary, I got, I got to do some things here. You're going to have to let go of me a bit. I got a few more things to do here, uh, before the ascension. I mean, I think there's that kind of, and, and in that way, it can be a sort of theological, expansive kind of metaphor for the way we, that we approach Jesus or we could, you could think about the way I, I want Jesus to be kind of the way I understand Jesus. I don't like, I don't want people to mess with my <laughs> understandings of the faith and I don't want, you know, I've always believed this and now someone's saying that now they're going to mess with the Lord's prayer. And now I, I just, you know, I'd like my, so I think we can use it as a kind of metaphor for our faith and the way we want to cling to the Jesus we know, the way we know him. And Jesus will never stay in the boxes we build for him. This happens all throughout scripture. And I think it happens in our own walk of faith as well. There's, there's a, there's this there Jesus is an escape artist and is always <laughs> out in front uh calling us to follow so i i sort of love that aspect of it as i play with the the question but i guess it generally it would be a post easter pre ascension kind of statement that the the way i am in the world right now in these uh, 50 days uh is going to change uh and uh, and that 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 ascension is a you know uh, is a time when Jesus promises to be with everybody always you know um, anyway. and it's important too in John's gospel it says many other things are recorded you know yeah. that Jesus did many other things that were not recorded right so we we don't have the full picture of what what happened in every hour and every minute of every time between things it, and it's just laid right out there like this is the stuff I wrote down so that you might believe. So this is John making a call on what he thought was important to include in this gospel. What would happen if Jesus never rose from the dead? Mm-hmm. You guys, the kids, I mean, the kids have got you, adults. I'm sorry. Man. She ran in to ask that question, too. Which is Excellent work, Amy. Came in. I'm sorry Good we question. don't have time for that. <laughs> 
What would happen if Jesus never rose from the dead? Would we still have a Christian faith the way we understand it? Well, um, the the Gospels uh, say, you know, for if there is no resurrection, we of all people are most to be pitied. So it is a central core uh, proclamation of our of our faith. This sort of uh, um, the defeat of sin, death, and the devil that is accomplished in the cross and given to us in the resurrection. So, with if there were no resurrection. Uh, then we would have a very different kind of uh, uh, theology. We would probably need to look at the life of Jesus as a, as a, as that of a great teacher. Uh, that we would, you know, we would focus uh, only on, you know, uh, his his teachings in such a way that we would try to model our lives on the things he said, and we'd try to, you know, do the things that he that he did. But in the end, uh, when we need to say something about our own mortality, our own deaths, when we need to say something about uh, that for somebody that we love, when somebody is facing their own mortality, our, our faith, only because of the truth of the resurrection, has something to say. That's really where we, that's where we live, is in that in that valley of the shadow of death because we are armed and dangerous in that valley with resurrection with a promise of new life so uh i don't know what would happen if jesus didn't raise from the dead because i know that he did and that just changes everything it changes everything you're right it would be a very different uh faith tradition if that gospel truth hadn't happened luther called it the great exchange on the cross jesus takes our sin and brokenness and gives us back himself for if we have been united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his Um, this is the proclamation of the easter faith it's why we dare to gather for worship on good friday what a depressing group of people we would be if that was it if good friday was it um you know ash wednesday remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return the end what a depressing <laughs> i don't know i'd have to look into some other you know i don't know how, what kind of buddhist i'd make or something but i'd have to i'd have to look somewhere else but that's uh the gift of easter is Jesus has been raised. So thanks yeah. for thanks for making us think about it a little bit. Yeah, the last verse of the, the reading we heard on Easter Sunday, not the gospel, but the reading said the last enemy to defeat to be defeated is death. And like that's what we that's what we that's what happened. When Jesus rose from the dead, he defeated the the final enemy. And I feel like that is the that's like the verse to remember there. All right, we better stop because there's another service after this. But thanks, everybody. Once again, the time flies when we do this. Every time, uh, I, I wonder, is this going to be the time we try this? And we all just sit there and stare at each other because nobody, <laughs> but it never happens. So thank you. That's a very unique thing we do here. Uh, and it takes a unique community of faith to pull it off. So thank you. God bless you. We'll stand together.